Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we discuss episodes 19 and 20 of Neon Genesis Evangelion and how they address Shinji's agency, the true nature of the Avas, and maybe the single greatest angel battle in the series. Unquestionably, the single greatest angel battle in the series. We won't spoil anything from future episodes of the show, but we will point out foreshadowing where it's relevant. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Unit 10. Launch. Episode 19, A Man's Battle. We open with Shinji, still inside Unit 1 right after the battle with Bardriel, now ensconced in the Nerve HQ hangar. Shinji refuses to exit the Eva, saying his father used him. Instead of speaking to his son, Gendo orders the LCL pressure in the plug suit increased until Shinji finally passes out. He winds up in the hospital, next to Toji. Also in the hospital, Ray and Asuka, still in their plug suits, talk. In this conversation, Ray seems puzzled at the idea of dreams, as if she doesn't have them. In his mind, Toji is sitting in the same train of thought that Shinji was in when he fought Liliel. Later, Shinji is a prisoner at Nerve, handcuffed and brought to stand judgment in front of his father. Gendo says that his son is a criminal, and Shinji says he doesn't want to pilot an Ava anymore. So Gendo casts him out. He says he's disappointed and doubts that he will ever see his son again. Shinji hopes so. At the train station, Shinji says goodbye to Misato. He asks if Asuka is upset. She is. She didn't even want to have Misato say goodbye for her. When Shinji asks why Toji was the fourth children, Misato says all of his classmates are potential Ava pilots. She only just found this out herself. Even so, she put all of her hopes in Shinji himself and wants him to remember that. In the taxi back, Misato thinks that she's never seen Shinji that determined before. Before Shinji's train arrives, though, an angel alert goes live. Bumper. Interjection. The 14th angel, Zuriel, the fucking LeBron James of angels, destroys 18 layers of Nerve's armor in a single cross blast. Not even Ramiel could do that. Asuka's deployed to the Geofront. There's no time to defend Tokyo 3. Uh, Unit Zero's arm hasn't regenerated yet from the previous battle, so Ray is launched in Unit 1 with the dummy plug as the backup. Unit 1, however, rejects her. Gendo mutters that Unit 1 is trying to refuse him, so they extract Ray and plan to send her out in Unit 0. She says, even if she dies, she can be replaced. Zeruel breaks through to the Geofront, where Asuka unloads on it with firearms to no avail. Even though its AT field is neutralized, Zeruel's body itself is practically indestructible. It then deploys its melee weapons, two long, razor-sharp ribbon arms. Zeruel cuts both of Unit 2's arms off in an instant, rendering it harmless and absolutely agonizing Asuka. Misato severs Asuka's connection with Unit 2 right before Zeruel decapitates the Evangelion. 
Shinji sits in a shelter just as Unit 2's head crashes right next to him. He realizes that Asuka is totally screwed and Rei likely won't fare much better. At HQ, Unit 1 also rejects the dummy plug. Gendo stands and tells Fuyutsuki to take command while he leaves. In the geofront, Shinji sees the decapitated Unit 2 just standing there and is then joined by Kaji, who's watering his melons? Kaji asks what Shinji's doing. Shinji says he's never piloting an Ava again, which doesn't actually answer the question. <clears throat> but Kaji can relate. Nerf found out about his quote-unquote second job and took away his clearance, so the only thing he can do right now is water his plants. Zeruel then fires another cross blast and penetrates Nerve HQ. At that moment, Kaji tells Shinji finally what the angels actually want. To make physical contact with the regenerating first angel, Adam, which will trigger the third impact and destroy mankind. Ray launches in Unit Zero, which has one arm and no weapons. Uh, Unit Zero is carrying an N2 mine. Ray's plan is a suicide charge. She negates Zeruel's AT field and attempts to shove the N2 mine up against its core, but Zeruel's secret body armor closes. The N2 mine detonates, but Zeruel is totally unharmed and dispatches Unit Zero with a single strike from its blades. Kaji reminds Shinji that he, and only he, can take any kind of action here, and while nobody will force him, he ought to consider fighting Zeruel, if only because he might regret it later. Zeruel has cleared a path inside of Nerve HQ, and Unit 1 continues rejecting the dummy plug. But Shinji shows up, confronts his father, and insists they let him fight. When Gendo asks why he's here, Shinji says that he is the pilot of Unit 1. That is his identity. Before Masato can evacuate her staff, Zeruel literally breaks into Nerve HQ and confronts her face to face. Zeruel prepares to execute her with a cross blast at point blank range, right before Unit 1 triumphantly bursts through the wall and punches it in the face. Shinji, piloting Unit 1, tackles Zeruel into the entry shaft and begins, we can now agree, the best fight in the whole series. Zeruel blasts Unit 1's handoff, splattering blood on Gendo, but Shinji keeps fighting. Masato launches Shinji and the Angel back into the geofront. Unit 1 maintains the upper hand, pulling Zeruel's helid out of its armor and preparing to rip it off, and then it runs out of power. Zeruel flings the powerless Evangelion away, and while Shinji is trapped helplessly inside, removes its breastplate. Underneath the Ava's armor is a core, just like the angel's core, and Zeruel begins stabbing it, intent on killing the only Evangelion that can hurt it. Inside, Shinji begs Unit 1 to move, while the entry plug itself begins to crack. And just then, he hears something. The Evangelion's heartbeat. Unit 1 activates of its own accord and enters Berserker mode. It rips off Zeruel's arm and absorbs it to regenerate its own limb. On the sidelines, Maya announces that Shinji's sync rate has climbed over 400%, and Ritsuko replies, She's awake. 
Unit 1 kills and eats Zeruel, ingesting its S2 drive, and then bursts through the restraints on its body. Ritsko informs the bridge crew, who are looking on in absolute horror, that the Ava's exoskeleton exists more or less to keep them under human control, and that now Unit 1 is breaking free of those restraints. From their office, Gendo and Fyutsky watch Unit 1 howl and then say to one another that everything is beginning now. Episode 20 of The Shapes of Hearts and Humans. Kaji posits that Zele will not like that Unit 1 is free. Hard cut to Zele. They do not like that Unit 1 is free. They comment that Ava's were not meant to have an S2 drive, that this was unforeseen, and that maybe trusting Gendo was a mistake. You think? In a debrief, they find that units 0 and 2 are badly damaged, and that Nerve HQ is all but destroyed. They need to move to the backup command center without the Magi. Hard cut to Kaji in Gendo's office. Gendo says Unit 1 will be grounded for now, but Kaji remarks that his son is still trapped inside. Maya is trying to eject the entry plug, but cannot. When they look at the video feed inside, Shinji's plug suit is floating in what looks like an empty cockpit. Ritsko remarks that this is what 400% sync looks like. Shinji has been totally assimilated into Unit 1. She admits that the Avas are, as she said plainly in episode one, something like artificial humans made by humans. But Masato pushes her. The Avas are copies of the angel they found in Antarctica. But Ritsko says that that's, it's not that simple. The Avas contain the wills of a human as well as their own will. Masato slaps her and demands that she fix what she's done to Shinji. The next day, Ray awakens in the hospital bed, amazed that she's still alive. Asuka, however, is alone in the old apartment, with the lights off, totally trashing it. She screams at Masato on the phone and is furious that Shinji beat Zeruel, where she could not. The next day, Ritsuko says that she has a plan to rescue Shinji. Shinji's body has lost its quote-unquote ego boundary and floats inside the LCL in a quantum state, the LCL has, in turn, become like a primordial soup, still containing all of the ingredients of his body. They will need to use the Magi to recreate his body and then insert his mind back into it. In the entry plug, Shinji sees his floating suit from a disembodied perspective, and then begins seeing visions of the people that he knows. He dissects his memories, trying to understand why it is he fights the angels, even though doing so makes him miserable, and also why he came to Nerve when his father called, even though he hates his father. Then he remembers that he'd seen the Avas before, and that was why he ran away from his family in the first place. Bumper, weaving a story to oral phase. It's been 30 days since Shinji was absorbed, and Ritsuko has outlined her plan to quote-unquote salvage him. It's based on a previous incident of someone being absorbed by an Evangelion. The last salvage operation, however, one her mother helmed, totally failed. In the entry plug, Shinji goes through another interrogation psychedelic sequence. 
he tries to understand his own loneliness and his desire for the warmth of other people. His hallucination returns to his interrogation inside of Liliel, but now an entity like Ray is interrogating him. He admits to her that he only pilots the Avas and fights because he needs the support of others. And the only reason people support him is because he's an Ava pilot. He then has a vision of a nude, hypersexualized incarnation of Misato that offers to sleep with him. The vision repeats with uh, images of the other women in his life, Ray and Asuka, going through the same motions until the images begin to overlap. At the same time, the plan to rescue Shinji begins. He hears the voices of his friends calling out to him, but they sound distorted. The bridge crew say Shinji's ego is locked into a continuous loop. The salvage operation uh, is catastrophically failing. Inside the plug, a half-transparent Shinji, curled into a fetal position, admits that he doesn't know if he wants to return to the real world. The imaginary women in his life ask Shinji what he wishes for, including his mother, who is not naked like the previous images, but obscured so that he cannot see her face. Outside, the entry plug opens, spilling LCL everywhere to Misato's dismay. She clutches his empty plug suit, sobbing, wondering what the point of science is if it can't save the life of a single person. She implores Unit 1 to give Shinji back to her. Shinji hallucinates further, as if he is waking up in his hospital bed. He remembers a conversation between Gendo and his mother while he was a baby. Gendo wondered how they would raise a child in the ruins of Second Impact, but his mother insisted that they still had hope for a good life. Shinji even remembers a conversation he heard in utero, where his parents decided that if they have a boy, he will be named Shinji. If they have a girl, they would name her Rei. In the real world, Shinji suddenly appears out of the core of Unit 1 next to Misato. The following day, Misato and Ritsuko are driving. Ritsuko says Zele is considering grounding Unit 1 forever. Misato says that none of that is as important as the fact that Shinji's alive. Ritsuko then says that the person who saved Shinji was Misato. And she should take credit. She asks Misato out for a drink, but Misato refuses. She has plans. Those plans are, later, Misato lying naked in bed with Kaji, telling him how Ritsuko thinks less of her for sleeping with him. She asks Kaji how long until the Human Instrumentality Project is complete, and says that a fully healed Adam could destroy the world. Kaji can't talk about that. He doesn't even know the purpose of Nerve, and begins having sex with Misato again to distract her. He then gives her a present, a small capsule. He says it may be his last gift to her ever. A lot going on there, huh? Um, so much. This is... Uh... You know, we've we've been saying it. It's the end game now. It's it's really the final final stretch. We're we're in the with the home stretch of Evangelion right now, and it certainly feels like it. You know, it, absent of our our recap, there's a few characters that pretty much are never going to be a part of the plot in a serious way again. You know, Toji's barely in the episode. 
uh, as long as uh, as well as uh, Hikari, class rep, barely in the episode. Kensuke shows up off screen briefly in a phone conversation that isn't really consequential to the plot. At this point, the high school plot line of Evangelion just barely exists. It's it's no longer really a, a core part of the show's identity. And the grand scheme, the whole point of all of the machinations of Zalia and Nerve are starting to become very evident. A lot of the chickens are coming home to roost. The other thing I want to point out is Evangelion wasn't a terribly optimistic show, even from the start. It's it's sort of grim. Uh, even in episode two, The Beast, you get some sense of like the sinister creeping in at the edges of the show. And as we talked about earlier, you know, when Asuka comes in, you get like sort of a little breather for like a couple episodes from that. And then it starts creeping back in. But I don't think anything really adequately preps you for the Bardriel fight. And I, I think it's a really powerful narrative statement of intent that in, in this pair of episodes, they don't give you any time lapse from the Bardriel fight. You go right back into the darkness from those episodes, and then it just doubles down on the misery. And and for what it's worth, do not expect this to let up if this is your first time through Evangelion, because the emotional distress just continues. I like, I, I'm glad you bring up the point of how quickly this gets moving because it always, every single time I watch episode 19, I'm shocked at how soon the alarm goes off in the episode. Zuriel just is like ready to go immediately. Like it was just like chomping at the bit to take its shot at, at Nerve HQ and get going <laughs> to get third impact on the road. Like th- I, we've briefly talked about this like off mic. But Zuriel feels like the first angel in a while that has like actual personality. You know, some angels feel like puzzles that need to be solved. Some of them feel kind of like dumb animals. But Zuriel is just a fucking asshole. Like it's vindictive. It's cruel. It has like a like evil sense of humor. Like closing the guard shut on its core at the last moment is just like what a dick move. <laughs> like it's it. <laughs> And it's such a great like twist because suddenly they're playing with an opponent who feels like smarter than them and also stronger than them and faster and has all the tools. That's why like, you know, the joke that I made about it being like the LeBron James, it's like this guy has everything. He's got every tool in his arsenal to just annihilate the the Evangelians. There's so much philosophically here and like plot wise for us to dig into, but I'm glad that we're taking a moment to just pause and talk about. Zeruel's my fucking boy. Like, <laughs> there are there are more beloved angels out there. Like, I know that Ian's personal favorite is Ramiel, if I'm correct. It probably waffles around, but that one is the, the one that I usually point to as being, like... It, it, it's one that has, like, personal significance for i just love how fucking weird it is you know it's i I, i'm like i'm I'm sentimental about how fucking weird ramiel is sure it's it's interesting that like for like a show that is like one of the things that is like groundbreaking about it is its sense of design um or rather its design philosophy and sensibility and like the degree to which it wants to deconstruct the tropes that it obviously adores zero will doesn't do that of of like all the angels he's probably like the least creatively designed he's kind of like 
a greatest hits album because he's just pieces of of other angels kind of like stuck together he comes in floating like ramiel he's got like the ribbon arms are like better than than the second angel you see's laser arms but it's essentially the same general idea he's got a lot of satchels like he's got the mask he's got the cross blast the cross blasts are finally back there's so much about him that seems sort of like uh, a rehash but again what you what you really do get from him that you haven't gotten from the angels in a long time is a sense of personality and if if Satchiel was like like a curious toddler then then Zeruel is like a furious teenager he's just pissed you see it in his mask. And the funny thing is, is like, in a way, his personality is almost his fucking undoing. Because, like, if... And I, I'm thinking of this in a couple ways, right? So, the, on the one hand, is like, he doesn't need to, to like, shame Asuka when he beats her. Like... But he, like, he, like, dismembers the Ava in this way that is, like, insulting and that is provocative mm -hmm. to Shinji. Like, the episode points out multiple ways, like, it doesn't just want to beat the Evangelions. It wants to, like, make them feel bad for even trying to fuck with him. And all of that kind of, like, provokes Shinji into action. And at the very end, this is, like, one of the, this is, I think, the only time you see this. It takes time out of its attack plan to go into Nerve HQ and and try to blast Misato, point blank, which is, like, so funny to me. It's like, fuck you all. Fuck this bitch in particular. I'm going to make sure you get fucking atomized first. And, like, you get the sense that if it hadn't been dilly-dallying, maybe it would have gotten to Terminal Dogma before Shinji got into Unit 1. But, obviously, that doesn't happen. It's too busy dunking on everybody. Right, yeah. The fact that it has this cross blast that can just cut through the entire armor of the Geofront in, like, two hits means that, like, if it was about its business, this could have been it. Like, it's a wrap, you know? But right. thankfully, for the quality of the show, we get this incredible fight scene that has personality to it. The fact that uh, Zuriel is such a dick allows us to get this incredible personality filled fight between it and Shinji. And I think this actually, this episode really validates a point that I made in our previous uh, podcast about when Shinji wants to, when Shinji is free from moral inhibitions, he can really like fuck shit up. Like he goes at Zerio in a way that he doesn't go at any other angel. Cause it's not even like the childish rage of his early fights. There's skill and determination in the way that he takes Zerio down. Like he takes the arm getting cut off. Like it's nothing. He's focused on getting it out of nerve into the geo front. So he can actually have some room to operate. He goes directly for its face. He's trying to destroy it in a way that is, really brutal but also like skillful in a way that we've never seen Shinji act before and that's to Masato's point at the very beginning of the episode that this entire episode is the most determined and free of other people's expectations that I think we've ever seen Shinji in the entire show 
and and that's where okay and i i want to keep talking about zero well like and i i wish i could i want to keep talking about all the cool little bits in the fight that we like didn't talk about in the plot summary because they aren't important but that are fucking cool like the the fucking horn in the eye it's dope but like here's here's where the fight does factor into this thing that i've been building on for the past couple couple episodes this sort of the the kierkegaard thing and so like i've been i've been trying to figure out this framework where with the lilial fight we start talking about kierkegaard's ethical spheres or existential spheres and we talk about how like the aesthetic life fails and the life of justice fails right and this is sort of shinji's like this is his redemption shot after falling too hard on justice and fucking it up with Bardriel about him, like having his moral compunctions and letting it, letting it get in the way of, of, of his doing what must be done. Right. And here, what, what he does is, okay, let me back it up for a second. So Kierkegaard thought that the, the, the idea of moral justice or the just sphere would fail because life is cruel and merciless in like an almost comic way. Um, and I think like you see Zeruel is as like the he's the embodiment of that in that he has a personality. He's like a cruel, impish Old Testament God, much the same way Shinji's dad is. And what Shinji does is like when morality fails in a world like that, Kierkegaard's words were you reside transparently in a power outside of yourself. You make a leap of faith. That's where this that term comes from. Or or rather a leap to faith is technically the better translation. I'm sorry to sound so pedantic, but like you see it in that moment where he says you know, I'm an Ava pilot. That's what I am. And he's cool with it. He like reset. He like exists entirely in his relationship with unit one and his duties and chooses it of his own free will rather than having his dad try to shove it down his throat. He chooses it for his own motivations and it just unlocks all of his potential. It 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 makes him this like superhuman fighter. And maybe it's why he's able to like sink to 400% with unit one. Totally. I think that even in the, uh, the scene where after the Ava powers down and he's trapped and trying to do everything he can to get it working again, he says, I want to live. I want everyone to live. You know, I don't want to die. Mm -hmm. I don't want that anymore. And that's when it activates. It's when his desire to live and his desire to live an actualized life with a purpose uh, coincides with the Ava's will that he's able to sink past 400 and, you know, go, go over 9,000, you know, do the whole thing. It's like the Super Saiyan moment in the mm -hmm. show. Of course, that has dramatic and horrifying consequences beyond what I think he may have intended to have happened. But uh, before we get to that, I also want to notice that this is one of the first times that someone is just like, that people are just straight with him in this episode in a way that they haven't been totally well they stopped treating him like a kid yes they're just honest with him like him and gendo's conversation is the only time where both of them there's no power dynamic you know they're instead of it being gendo looking from this like plane of glass 
several stories above Shinji and talking down to him. They're on equal playing fields. They're both on the same eye level. They're, you know, there's that great shot of the two of them in Gendo's office where they're seeing eye to eye. And mm. they're, you know, Gendo is saying like, here are your crimes. And Shinji says, I know, I don't give a shit. I don't want to be a Nava pilot. And it's just them meeting with their own personal goals straight with each other instead of it being this dynamic where Shinji is constantly trying to please Gendo or trying to anticipate Gendo's needs in some way. The same way when Masato is dropping Shinji off at the train station, Masato comments on it. Shinji is just being level with her. He's, he doesn't want to do this anymore. He doesn't care about, he's no longer put under pressure when Masato says, Oh, we were all counting on you. He's like, that's the selfish thing for you to say. He calls her out on her attempts to emotionally manipulate him. And then the scene with him and Kaji, Kaji just straight up tells him the thing that no one else had the guts to tell Shinji for the entire show. This is why you're fighting. This is what it's all about. This is the goal. You didn't realize that, you know, the whole point was to protect Adam from the angels so that we're preventing third impact. He just, he's finally getting the information that allows him to act of his own free will instead of being coerced into acting. Okay, but let me zoom back on that for let me so let me let me rewind for a second sure. there because you're I agree with everything you're saying and you're right, but you're also if I have one complaint about this otherwise perfect episode, this is it. I almost and maybe it's because I've seen this show so many times, but I'm sure someone seeing the first time would probably who's like media sophisticated, right? Which is I assume most of our audience would probably have the same reaction it's like oh yeah you know the angels they they reach the thingy they hit the macguffin and then humanity dies and it's like no shit like the show does sort of like treat it as this like mind-blowing revelation and like i understand like the weight of it but at the same time it's kind of like these are giant cross laser monsters called angels that like do all sorts of crazy fucking shit that i need to pilot a giant psychic bleeding robot to to fight and one of them sucked me into a parallel dimension and tried to probe my fucking brain you you you're not kidding they're they're trying to blow up the world no you don't say like it, <laughs> it, it, do you see what i'm saying with this like it's like okay oh sure th- now you're laying out the stakes the obvious stakes well let me put it this way i, I would say that the importance is in the fact that kaji is willing to tell him the details Uh, That it's not just the platitude of you're saving the world. It's like leveling with him and saying, like, these are the specifics of what the angels are trying to do. And I trust you with that information instead of feeding you the general line of propaganda that would make you become an Ava pilot. It's it's taking him seriously. As you said, it's no longer treating him like a kid. And I think that that's a crucial difference. It's all in the minute differences. I agree. Like. A lot of that information is really in some ways meant more for the viewer to see and then realize that uh, now we know that in the most plain terms, you know, right uh, now we we understand exactly what the angels are doing and how it relates to Adam and all that. Like Kaji's kind of, kind of also laying it out for us as much as he is for Shinji. But I think it's the tonal difference in the way that that information is presented that is important in this particular episode as it relates to uh, Shinji's agency. Sure, sure. For what it's worth, I just, I think, 
there's other more interesting revelations in this pair of of episodes among them sure. and this is like almost like a throwaway line but we had to put it in when when ray remarks she goes it's okay if i die i can be replaced weird Big fucking moment. thing to say <laughs> way weirder than the no dreams thing like the no dreams thing seems like it should have happened six episodes ago yeah it, we've got a it's been a slow burn with a lot of the ray stuff and they still haven't quite spelled it out but i think like discerning viewers have probably picked up an, on enough of the tropes and enough of the breadcrumbs here to start to get an idea of exactly what's going on it should just be noted that that idea is pretty well in conjunction with the idea of the dummy plugs being clones of ray right and so she could just be theoretically just referring to the dummy plug but uh maybe she's not <laughs> is all, all i'll say about that that's just a, let's just put that down as foreshadowing I do. If you've got any other quick things about the Zuriel fight that you want to mention, my personal favorite is the weird way that its arms move when it's attacking the core of unit one. It's such a strange and kind of like delicate way of doing it. It's it's really almost like antithetical to the way that the rest, the, the rest of Zuriel moves. I just love that detail. It's so like creepy and weird. <laughs> it's, it's such a good just there's so many good moments in the fight like you can tell that it's scripted that that they they planned this pretty far in advance like that's creepy the way that like when unit one finally reaches like full consciousness that it's got to like sort of crawl on the ground it's like a monkey almost oh, like it's yeah, like oh it's, it's an so artificial freaky. human the sound design of the the ava's voice too i know it's like come up a few times before like every time that the the ava has gone berserk it's been there but we get a lot of like extra ava sound of it like chewing and ripping and breathing super heavily and even in episode 20 when it's you know like locked up in bandages you get it like slowly breathing in the background of other conversations and it's just like oh god <laughs> just goosebumps has that has that been there the whole time and i've never noticed it no i know i noticed it in that in that sequence but i've never gone to think like earlier when they're there like just talking by the head is the breathing sound there because if if it's been there the whole time no not like that okay. that's that's specific to this episode okay that would have been a really cool really cool touch but it's also cool that it just appears out of nowhere i was just gonna say like the you see its breath like it's cold in the geo front and you see it's like it its breath is such like a great artistic fucking touch I, I love that. I love that. The like awakened Ava is like subtly freaky in all these great ways. The fact that its eyes are clearly visible. It has these like bright green eyes that you haven't seen since episode two, you know? Right. It has teeth. <laughs> and as we've learned from like the original Sonic trailer, teeth where they shouldn't be really freak us the fuck out, you know? Holy shit. I'm sorry. And we haven't done this ever, but pause for one second because I need to look something up. I just thought of something. For what it's worth, so people know, I just looked up if Shinji's mom has green eyes, which is maybe the other thing we should talk about now because like it let's let's just go there. Okay. So. Yeah. Does that feel like a spoiler? That doesn't feel like a spoiler to me at this point. It's not a spoiler, not after these two episodes. I mean, no. I'm not saying if you will or won't get more of, of Yui. It would be nice to have her, like, sort of outlined as, like, a character with, like, agency, you know? But, like, I think at this point in time, we're we're at the point where it's obvious. 
Yes. Episode 20 is, you know how in the early stages of the show, I would, I would do a lot to justify the sort of psychosexual Freudian element of the show and like some people maybe thought I was like overreaching on the analogies that I was drawing. This episode justifies literally all of them. Um, yeah, because in Shinji's hallucinations, there's an explicit connection between when Shinji is like observing the angels repeating continuously and saying, my enemy, my enemy, my enemy, my enemy. And it starts intercutting Gendo in between all of them. <laughs> like, okay. Metaphor made literal. Like Shinji is fighting the angels, but his enemy is his father. And therefore the angels are in some way a representation of his father to him in the same way. Like, okay. So the train of thought when Shinji is trapped inside of Lilial, he sees the person sitting across from him in the train of thought as himself, as a child. Now that he's trapped inside of unit one, Instead, he sees it as a child version of Ray. And as this episode makes clear, you know, there's that whole sequence of like all of the women in his life trying to seduce him basically into subsuming himself into unit one. And then it finally ends with the vision of his mother. Point being that he's seeing his mother or representations of his mother and all of the women in his life. So we can assume that when he's on the train of thought and he's seeing Ray in some way, he's seeing a representation of his mother. Does that feel like too much of a stretch right. to you? No, I think that's <sighs> foreshadowing. That's going to seem a lot less ridiculous as the episodes go on, especially once you like it's, I, I, it's almost cheating to me that you don't see Huey's face. Like it's almost like too, it's almost like too convenient that he he mm-hmm. can't remember his mom's face. But at the same time, it there's all these other like oblique references to Yui in both of these episodes that they talk about. Someone has synced with Unit 1 to 400% before. The salvage didn't go right. Ritzko like overtly says like the Evangelians also have a human will inside of them. Huh? Who, whose will is inside? And she's awakened. She is awakened. And Gendo says she's rejecting me, which is like. It's like it's so on point that it's kind of funny. Like you can almost imagine like it cuts away right before like Futsky looks at him and says, really? She's rejecting me. That's what you have to say. You're like, shut the (laughs) fuck up, dude. (laughs) Everyone should have been saying to Gendo, get over it for a long time now. But I think we're pretty way past that point by now. Also, going back this these episodes have a lot of great callbacks to previous episodes. So now that we know this, now that we can infer this about unit one, let's think about the very first episode of the show when their, you know, nerve is rocked and hit and some of the debris falls from the ceiling before Shinji gets into unit one, unit one blocks the debris and saves Shinji's life. Now knowing what we know about unit one, how fucking crazy is that? How powerful is that moment in retrospect? We didn't, we didn't mention it, but there is a moment where Hyuga who like of all the bridge crew people, God, I love the fucking bridge crew people. But like in retrospect, Maya gets all the attention and rightfully so because Maya is righteous. But like Hyuga does have that great moment where he points out to Misato. He's like, you know, it's like activated when it's not plugged in like two times. 
even even without an S2 drive, and now it's got an infinite battery. So uh, who the fuck knows? And yeah, another great callback um, that I, I just want to briefly call out because it's really subtle and it's only through watching the show multiple times that I've even caught this. But when Masato is like, clutching the plug suit after it's fallen out of like the big lcl puddle and she's saying like what good is science when it can only save it can't even save a single life that's a recall from the dialogue of the movie that shinji watched in the movie theater in episode three. Oh, holy shit how did i miss that <laughs> it's so quick it's like literally just background noise in a previous episode that literally foreshadows a line one of the most emotional lines in the show it's crazy to me well let's let's talk about i know we're bouncing around episode 20 so hard guys and guys and gals and i'm so sorry but like i just gotta point this out because now we're there misato what a fucking episode for her mm-hmm. and one in like as, as i'm re-watching this show the big takeaway i'm getting is just how fucking dope misato is and what like emotional range the character has and how none of these like sort of melodramatic moments don't feel earned like when she's like saying to unit one give him back like i i i, I think the characters earned that at this point and i think it's important like the, in the previous episode we were talking about how much how much Masato fails Shinji by yeah you know not telling him about Toji for two episodes straight but that is yeah. set up for that moment we now know that like she feels guilt and she feels that she's failed Shinji and that allows that moment of her you know her determination to sh- save Shinji once again lends gravitas to that it makes it feel earned and that's why it doesn't seem completely absurd to have this you know woman clutching an empty you know, plug suit yelling at a giant robot. Like it feels viscerally powerful. Totally. In a weird way, it it sets up this, it it really earns this thing where it's almost her versus Yui in like a tug of war for Shinji's soul in that episode. Mm -hmm. And I really like that dynamic. I'm glad they don't like play into it too much, but in those, in that like 10 minutes where it's obvious that like, She's not Shinji's mother figure, but she wants Shinji to go out into the world and live, even though it hurts because he deserves it and because it's what's right. And maybe Unit One selfishly wants to keep Shinji assimilated inside of it. I I, I feel like that's that's the weird sci-fi existential. That's what's great about speculative fiction and stylized storytelling is you you get these very abstract conflicts presented in like a tangible emotional way that's mm-hmm. like moments like that are what i love about this show yeah i mean it, it the show has been constantly setting up this idea of the entry plug as as a womb in a lot of ways like that's something that's been continuously hinted at throughout the entirety of the show and shinji is literally reborn reconstituted his body is recreated inside of this womb and then spit out at the end of the episode but to have that conflict between the sort of like idealized womb mother figure of the Ava and the actual like surrogate mother of Masato and that one will you know this the degree of separation is obviously going to be greater between Shinji and Masato they're not 
literally the same being the way that he is with unit one but that's the necessary step that's what needs to be done to live life is to accept that you're a different person than other people and to embrace that fact and that's what allows you to to move throughout the world in a way that isn't uh, destructed to the self it's kind of the thesis statement of the show you know baked into this single conflict that's specific to this episode totally and it, it sort of harkens back to this she becomes yui to an extent because like yui has that conversation with gendo in shinji's memory where gendo's like do you even want to like raise a kid after the second impact and she's like of course i've got hope and in in that moment is when she's more like Misato in the sense that the, the second impact is this cataclysmic moment that sort of severed mankind from nature and from God, like in, in that way that birth is this cataclysmic moment that separates people from like the, the beings that literally created them. Right. And to do that, you've got to have hope in that moment. Misato has so much like hope for Shinji's future for for better in in that moment she is being the better the better mother and that's i think a a a true point that the show is making you know um right and it's important that when after it's those conversations that yuri uh yuri is having with gendo are triggered by masato saying i want shinji back it's only then when unit one hears that that shinji is able to then hear the conversations that his mother and father had that then justify the decision to have him re-released back into the world totally Uh, so that it's made explicit a few other quick things about these episodes in the last few episodes that have had these kind of extended hallucinatory sequences you may have noticed that there's a bunch of new music cues Uh, and it's been a while since we've talked about the music of the show these are all decidedly very different in tone you have this sort of like percussion and you know choral drone pieces you've got like a lot of like long extended it's a lot more human voices singing yeah and my personal favorite my absolute one of my favorite music cues in the show is the sort of like koyani scotsy esque like organ piece that with the you know philip glass arpeggios on the organ and the high reedy like horns and all of that it's so creepy i love it i love that the show is able to change its musical palette so much in its second half to change the way the show feels it's it's one of my favorite details of the show that's interesting because if i've won just ping-ponging back to zero for one second if i have one complaint Mm -hmm. about that episode it's that i feel like the music doesn't match the fight in retrospect like i i feel like i wanted something more more exhilarating there uh the show i do think is kind of pulling its punches in terms of giving us a another battle theme but just wait. <laughs> yeah, just say about that. Just, yeah, you're going to get you're going to yeah, get there's, it. There's more coming. <laughs> I just here's some foreshadowing for you folks. Um, The next episode, the next pair of episodes we talk about is going to be very difficult for me, yeah. which has to do with a musical cue. My my personal most and least favorite moment in the series at the same time. But before we get into that. And before we, before we start winding down, there's one more thing we got to talk about because it's almost like it, the funny thing about episode 20 is it almost feels like it ends. Like it's like Shinji's back. You're a naked little 14 year old boy came out of primordial ooze. Do do do. Happy ending. Sort of. Everything's blown up, but we're happy. And then you get the Misato fucking Kaji scene, which, which like 
it's what what's weird is like this is like such like a cerebral and mournful memory focused episode it's also like one of the horniest episodes in this it's so fucking horny right yes instead of the horniness being played for jokes or for like psychosexual action terror it's just like this is the real shit this is the stuff underneath all of that that is justifying and motive like uh motivating all of that other stuff this is why this show could never get put on toonami on unlike cable on the united states is because you're going to get an episode where there's a solid like is it like 20 seconds 30 seconds of just like you hearing the bed slap against the wall kaji shouts out to kaji putting in work having a second wind good for him but like it is like oh god (laughs) i remember being like pretty scandalized by it the first time i watched the show because it is like i mean you don't see anything but that almost makes it like even more like uncomfortable to like be in the room and just be seeing like the the desk next to them and just hear them is like oh god whoa too intimate you know it's it feels like something you're not <laughs> this is a weird thought um it's a moment we as viewers aren't invited to and like that the camera mm-hmm. won't show it isn't like isn't like some tacit admission that like sex and like eroticism is something that the show is better than or not capable of because obviously it isn't better than that and is capable of that because it just did both earlier in the episode but like it's this sort of like admission that it's like this this thing that we're seeing is like really belongs to people that aren't us. And the only reason we're here is because there's some information you as viewers need to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's great is that that's even built into the dialogue of the scene. The fact that they're deliberately avoiding the conversation of Kaji has the info that Masada wants but can't give it to her. He has to withhold that information because he knows they're being watched. And so we're almost the powers that be that are like voyeuristically looking in on them while they're having that conversation. It's really clever. I really like it. We're we are the idiots at Zele asking our intern. Yeah, what happened on the the Kaji security cam? I don't know. He's laying pipe. Ah, Fast forward (laughs) through it. I don't care about that. (laughs) <laughs> right. He's keeping up appearances in the exact way that he he describes to Misato in that scene. And then what a what a hammer to drop at the very end. Like, obviously, at the beginning of the episode, Zele is like, oh, the bell that we've rung uh, around Gendo's neck has outlasted its usefulness. And then it immediately cuts to Kaji's face. It's like, ooh, oh, no, <laughs> it might be quiet for your boy coming up. And then I he mean, basically says at the end of the episode like this, this is probably it for me. Yeah. And that, but it's so weird. It it, it uh, but they don't shy away from the weird Freudian thing because like he he just I mean we must assume just nutted. And then he hands Misato a capsule and he says this is the last gift I'll ever give you. It's like it's almost heavy handed if it weren't so fucking sad. Yes, and it also sort of has this weird resonance with like the the scene two scenes before this is Misada like begging this new deity unit one to like, please relinquish your only son back into the world of maturity. The world of maturity is right for him. And then what does the world of maturity look like? Weird. We're being spied on. Stop talking about stuff. Sex. That's what adulthood is. And that's well, 
Yeah, oh, man, there's so much. Uh, now that like you're in the end game, all I want to do is talk about the rest of the end game because I feel like it's all really linked together in this really beautiful way. But I can't do it. Uh, no. Nope. Needless to say, like that observation that you made is relevant to the way that the show works. And we'll get there. We'll get there. I just need to calm myself down. <laughs> yeah. Stop having visions of the people in your life seducing you into some sort of sexual mind goo absorption. But, you know, I'll give the, I'll give this show this at the first time I saw this. I remember this distinctly as a 14 year old. I'm like, oh, my God, they've done like all the gals in the show. If the next one's his mom, I swear to God. And they don't. Because mm-hmm. I was like, that's too much. That's too much. They they do like spare you that one hammer blow. Well, but also that cut to his mother with like the obscured face. It gives me like David Lynch level goosebumps. Because it's the it's the pulling back of the mask in a lot of ways, you know, like, yeah. you know, that the Masato, Ray and Asuka that you're seeing in Shinji's hallucinations are not Masato, Ray and Asuka. But you don't know what they are yet. And then suddenly the mask is ripped off and you understand what Shinji is actually seeing, what he's actually grappling with internally. And it's just this like, whoo, it's this super powerful psychic blow. Um, right. Real quickly, we should talk about. We've already kind of talked about Ray, but we should talk about the last scene that we have with Oscar, and I think this will set us up very well for what we're going to have to talk about soon, which is the next few episodes. But we'll get there when we get there. But I just want to briefly touch on how badly these episodes go. These two that we've just watched and are talking about now, how badly they go for Oscar. Um, it's been going badly for Oscar for a while, and this is like so. I am, I am, I am the chief Oscar fanboy, so I'm going to come in here and step into that role, full well knowing that it is a bad role and will ultimately lose. I know that, but I'm gonna here do it anyway. We talked earlier about how how much energy and passion and momentum that Asuka brings to the show, even though she like definitely has these cringy moments where she's like a completely unlovable character. It's the past few episodes have really not been kind to, to her. You know, in the Liliel fight, she's like, ah, Shinji should have fucking known better. And then like you get the moment where weird psychopath Ray has to check her for being a fucking creep. And then in the Bardriel fight, she tries to be a good person, tries to like tell Shinji what's up and she gets murked for it off screen. That's not how you treat the Queen. That's not right. And then in this episode, man, Zeruel just bends her over. It is no good. You know, like she gets a really, she gets a really shameful send up. Which, in fairness, might be, like, I'm not trying to blame the victim here, but, like, a little bit her fault because she, like, trusts the Evangelion weapons. And it's, like, guns never work. They've worked once. (laughs) Why do you believe in the guns? (laughs) Right. But it's, I think that what the show is doing is it's setting, you know that, looking at that action sequence. And so you know she's going to get owned. So what you're watching is essentially her denying the reality of the situation. Right. You know, she believes that she can right. just power through it, but she clearly can't and just get, oh my God, like the level of, it's just brutal the way that Zuriel just rips her apart. And 
Yeah, and then the next the next time we see her, she's destroying the entire apartment because her entire ego has been fucking shattered by this. Like this is it. Like she can't if she can't even competently fight an angel, what does she have? You know? It it's easy to, I think I think it's easy to like sit on the outside and like and like look at her and and be like, you're fucking probably best friend also like dude you're clearly into even though you won't admit it to yourself uh just got turned into fucking goo and you're mad that it beat the kaiju you couldn't beat that's pathetic and it is but at the same time like in now as an adult like i i look at her and i'm be like man Remember all those times that you thought you were really good at something and then you got a job doing the thing that you thought you were really good at and then someone fired you anyway? That's that's Zeruel to her. Like, that's Zeruel yeah. to her as her boss calling her in at 4 p.m. and being like, yeah, this is a termination interview. And then Shinji getting her job. And that she's, like, into him has to make it even sting even more. Yeah, she's going through a lot and we will discuss that soon because, uh, you know, actually, like, look, now that we know we're in the end game, like, we're going to discuss the the end of the arc for all of these characters, for Asuka, for Rei, for Misato, Kaji, Ritsuko, and, of course, Shinji and Gendo. But, you know, maybe somewhere along the way, we'll also be able to sneak in just a tiny little bit of fan service as well. Great talking to you, Joseph. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at anotheravapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.